How are you feeling, Nick? I'm very sad. Why are you sad? I don't know. I just didn't do anything. What do you mean you didn't do anything? I didn't do nothing. I don't know. Nick, what went on? Why are you crying? I'm not crying. Am I? Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Hadley Mendelson. And I'm your other host, Alyssa Fiorentino. You're listening to Dark House, Lombard Street, Part 2. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, go ahead and tune into that one first. In today's episode, we'll finish the story about Lombard Street because, believe it or not, we only got through the first half so far and it gets actually crazier. As in part one of this story, much of my research and reporting comes from Pat Montandon's 1975 book, The Intruders. Because we wanted to find a way to end on a positive note, too, since this is just like such a heavy story. In the second half of today's episode, we're going to be joined by special guest Stephanie Campos, who is an astrologer, healer, and as she calls herself, a good witch. She's also from the Bay Area and based in San Francisco. So she's the perfect person to help us try and unpack what went awry during Pat's astrology themed party. Before I jump into the episode, I just want to give everyone a heads up that there will be graphic descriptions from an autopsy report, as well as mentions of suicide that may be disturbing to some listeners. Okay, so with that, let's pick up right where we left off in the story, which is when another fire breaks out in the apartment on Lombard Street, right after Pat Montandon moved out, and this time with fatal consequences. So the fire broke out on June 21st, 1969. And it killed Mary Louise Ward, who was 47 years old at the time. Upsetting. It's really upsetting. Her son, Jimmy, had, thank God, been sleeping at a friend's house that night, even though that was sort of a last minute plan. The fire broke out. We don't know how long exactly, but it likely happened around that 2 a.m. mark, which gives new weight and significance to the fact that that's always when Pat would be woken up by an impending sense of dread. And the fire department was dispatched at 2.31 a.m. when a neighbor noticed flames in the window after coming home late from a party. While the autopsy noted the official time of death as 2.57 a.m., that was most likely the time that she was found. And Chief Firefighter Gautier found Mary Lou's body face down on the bed with her legs kind of draping over the end of it. And she had third-degree burns on her entire lower body with extreme charring to her lower extremities. There were other really disturbing visual descriptions in the actual autopsy report that I read that I'm just not going to share because I don't think we need to. But it was a really horrifying scene. Once the fire was out, they immediately notified the arson department and the homicide department because of suspicious circumstances. And the investigators also found that the wall between the bedroom and the office slash spare room, which was where the headboard was, had burned down completely and everything was charred wood and ashes, just total soot ridden chaos, including the kitchen. So this brings me to the transcript of the coroner's inquest, which called several investigators, neighbors, family and friends, including Pat, to testify as witnesses. There are lots of loose ends and mysteries, so I'm just going to list out each of them now. Arson inspector Lucas testified that the flames had been confined to the bedroom and that it was a smoldering, 
contained fire. Part of this was because the apartment was so thoroughly secured from the inside. Remember all of those bars and deadbolts and chains that Pat had installed when she was feeling extra paranoid? Yeah. That seems to have created kind of a tinderbox of a situation here. So much so that when the fire department arrived, it took them kind of a while to get past all of those different locks and security implementations. They claimed that it was so secured from the inside that no one would have been able to break in. And the proof of this was that the doors and the windows were still locked from the inside when first responders arrived. So how could anyone have gotten out? Okay. It kind of reminds me of episode two of season one with the Velisca Axe murder house yes. of murder within a locked building. Yes. This does conflict with the upstairs neighbor stories. She didn't say this in any official documents. This is something that Pat found in her own investigation afterward. But she claims that when she asked the upstairs neighbor herself, they swore the window was open and that that was how the neighbor even noticed the smoke and the fire. But up for debate. So back to the official records. According to the coroner's inquest, the SF fire department believed that the fire began in the closet in the bedroom, which news to me, there's a crawl space right above it. And they said that it kind of spread up to this like attic crawl space above the closet and bedroom and then also into the actual bedroom. They also strongly believe that it was due to faulty wiring. They had an electrician come. They said much of it worked, but it was probably illegal. But the odd thing was is that there was no outlet back there and they couldn't find an outlet in the closet. The only thing in the room plugged into something was a TV on the other side of the room. But the wires ran into that crawl space? That's what they said. Another odd piece of evidence. When the landlord came to the scene, he said that he had seen an ashtray in the living room overflowing with cigarette butts. Jimmy. (laughs) But nobody else could corroborate that. But that's actually a good point. Accidents happen. Yeah. One of the witnesses called to testify as a sort of character witness was Mary Lou's other really close friend. And she had been the one on the phone earlier that evening. And when asked whether Mary Lou smoked or entertained guests regularly, she firmly said no to both. And so did everybody else who was asked this question. So it's pretty unlikely that somebody had been there or that Mary Lou was smoking. But another way that they eliminated the possibility of her having company over that night, somehow, miraculously, Evelyn Walker from unit number one downstairs was home. And she was asked to testify too. And they said, like, do you remember hearing multiple different foot patterns overhead last night? Did it sound like there was any guests over or anything like that? And she said... The only thing she remembers was it being pretty quiet and she had a passing observational thought of, oh, Mary Lou must be home in Patsy's place because she heard light footsteps. But she didn't hear a second set. She didn't hear chatter or any music or anything like that. Hmm. Okay. The next odd clue. They wanted to find out if she'd accidentally overdosed or had some kind of freak reaction to some kind of substance. And so in the toxicology report, they found a lot of interesting details that essentially eliminated that. But she did have a prescription for sleeping pills and they pretty much proved that she couldn't have taken it that night because the trace amounts in her system were so low that it was probably from several nights earlier. Her BAC level was also so low that if she even had a drink, it was one. I think it was 0.04 or something. And this is in line with what her friend said about her only having one glass of wine. While she did have a history of having high blood pressure, it seemed kind of sexist in the report that I read verbatim. The doctor said she seemed hypertensive. And when the head coroner asked what that meant, 
he says, no, hypertonic, like high key, hyper nervous. So I don't know if she even actually had a high blood pressure. It just sounds like they were saying she was neurotic. So here's another highly suspicious thing from the autopsy. When there's a fire of this nature and it's smoldering and trapped in one room, which all of the experts agreed that it was, and the person is alive when it breaks out, they wind up with really high levels of carbon monoxide in their lungs. But in this case, it was really low levels, even lower than the amount that someone would have if they'd had one drag of a cigarette or were standing on a corner with heavy traffic. Which points to her being dead Mm -hmm. before the fire starts. Yeah. So that fact alone is, I think, enough to prove that she must have been dead, right? And despite her legs being severely burned, which was another red flag, the investigators were all so confused about why didn't she get out of bed? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But why did it look like she had gotten out of bed and then collapsed backward because her legs were hanging like draped over the side? Okay, so who killed her then? Because you already told me that nobody was in there. Well, exactly. And also her organs were intact. Everything was in normal condition. Her heart didn't show any signs of trauma. So cardiac arrest and like shock and dying of fear is kind of out of the question. So how did she die? And the coroner, Dr. Turkle comes to this conclusion saying she did suffer severe burns and we believe she was apparently dead when those burns did occur, which honestly makes me feel better because I think it would be horrible to die that way. But we don't know why she died is what he wrote verbatim. So to this day, Mary Louise Ward's cause of death is documented as undetermined with the caveat that the coroner is sure she was dead before the fire started. So The chances of an electrical fire starting right before someone dies of a freak but natural cause just moments before seems pretty insane, right? Yes, but if I'm a murderer and I'm lighting it on fire when I'm done, I would have lit the whole place on fire. I wouldn't have been like, here's one closet. I'll start it here and I'll let it do its thing. Like I just would have been like, gasoline everywhere, make sure everything starts to burn. It all doesn't add up, in my opinion, to any type of conclusion. This is really weird. Yeah. And this is another kind of odd thing that if this is true, I'm surprised that it wasn't investigated further. Or if it was investigated further, why it wasn't in any of the reports. But basically, Pat got a hold of the upstairs neighbor. She told Pat that someone had obviously been inside of their apartment that day. They noticed that a chair had been taken from the kitchen and placed inside of a closet. (gasps) And they did notify the police and apparently into their own apartment. Yes. Unit number three. Okay. They did notice that a false ceiling had concealed thousands of dollars worth of drugs. Wow. Why wouldn't they have followed that leader, connected the dots? And if they were separate issues and they fully didn't think they were connected, it's still strange to me that they didn't come out to the public with that information. Wait. What? What if that false ceiling where Uh the drugs are hidden leads into the crawl space. Yeah. And somebody came through the ceiling, got their drugs into the crawl space. I'm just saying like that. No, that's a really good idea, Alyssa. Because how else would you get in? Well, that's the thing. Everything's locked up. Mm -hmm. Still doesn't explain why there's no trace of what could have killed her and still doesn't explain why would you let the crawl space on fire. But again, let's say like maybe they dropped something that could have caught fire. I don't know. It seems really weird. But I definitely would say if there's drugs hidden in the ceiling, what if there was more and they were like, we have to go get them. And it was hidden in their floorboards or something, which led to the crawl space. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere where they ended up there. And then when she finds them, if I had somebody coming through my closet, my heart would be pounding. Well, okay. 
we're going to circle back to your theory about coming into the crawl space in one second. But another thing I will say is, frankly, the police had their hands very full the summer of 69. The lead investigator who was in charge was Dave Toshi, who was the most prominent and notorious investigator in the Zodiac killer case. But didn't they not solve that case until years later? I don't think they ever even did solve it. It's unsolved. What was it? The Golden Gate killer? The Golden State killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sure. You're confusing your California serial killers. Sorry about that. And it's just, again, goes to show how many like overlapping crazy things were happening in this time. And if you didn't know that much about the Zodiac Killer, which based on your pop quiz right then you didn't basically some murders were linked to a killer who wrote letters anonymously to the San Francisco Chronicle and the SF Examiner taking credit for uh, some slayings that had happened and were clearly you know, from one person. And he provided a clue, which was a 408 symbol cryptogram that the killer claimed revealed his identity. Spoiler, it's Charles Manson. (laughs) What does Zodiac have to do with it? Like nothing except for the weird symbol that he would use as his signature. And I just think that the parallel between the astrologist's curse and then Zodiac's namesake is creepy. Yeah, but it wasn't an astrologist. It was the tarot reader. Yeah, but they're all kind of like for people who aren't super into that world. I see this as an opportunity for us to set the record straight. For somebody who doesn't know that much about them, tarot and astrology are completely different. There can be connections, but... I think he might be exploiting, though, the fact that this is like this kind of fad at the time. And it gives me the impression, too, if he knows that people are caring about it right now. And I mean, she just had this famous party like a year ago about astrology, whatever... I just think that's an odd overlap. You think he was inspired by Pat's parties? What if he was there? Shut up. There's lots of theories about who it could be and pretty strong ones too, I think. Now I'm going to have to read up because I'm like, I'll solve any crime by dinner time, truly. <laughs> okay, so back to Mary Lou. She was obviously murdered, at least in my opinion she was. But again, like you said, by who and why? And I think it's pretty clear that there was foul play, but we don't know the weapon or the cause of death. And in terms of suspects... I think it could be anything from maybe someone targeting Patsy Lou who didn't know that she was gone out of the house. Obviously, there were a lot of people who could have had some beef with her. The newspaper, who she was suing over that headline about her being a call girl. $100,000 were on the line. So she could have made enemies that way. It could have been people who even just saw that headline and then were harassing her. It could have also been the most obvious suspects, in my opinion, which were the drug dealers, which I think that lines up nicely with your theory about maybe someone crawled through. I don't think it would have been accidental, though. I think maybe they knew someone was home. And like they said, they knew that Pat was the one who called the cops. And so they wanted to punish her, whether it was her or not her. They knew that it was someone who she knew. Yeah, because I would think that they probably just went back for the drugs because that's money. Yeah. Oh, don't forget the abusive Earl Raymond dude. What if it was him? I thought Earl Raymond was going to be who moved in upstairs when you were like, guess who? Oh, oh my God. No, I don't think he has anything to do with it. I also think Earl Raymond was possessed. So I'm also curious in terms of let's pretend maybe it was Mary Lou who was targeted because after eight and a half years and then one week and Pat is out of the apartment and all of a sudden it happens is crazy to me. I actually think it makes sense that it wasn't Pat to kill her and put her out of her theoretical misery mm-hmm. versus making her live knowing her best friend died house sitting her apartment yeah and there's nothing she can do about it and it's unsolved crime so she if i was pat i would have spent the rest of my life investigating this until i found out what the hell happened but the fact that scientifically there's no explanation for mm-hmm. at least the murder and also think about it this way 
if the her blood of her body was burned, and let's say she was strangled, wouldn't that burn off any fingerprints anyways in DNA? I don't know for sure. Totally. And then I'm also just wondering, like, the sun being away is strange to me. And then I also think it's odd that the oldest daughter was like in her. I don't know. The whole thing is weird. And it doesn't sound like they followed every lead. But then also, obviously, there's the concept of what if it wasn't a human that killed her? I don't know. I don't think the curse killed Mary, although obviously we're sitting here with like no scientific reason for cause of death. But I, that sounds far-fetched. But I do think that in terms of karma and things coming on, obviously something's wrong with this apartment. Well, her theory is that this random tarot card reader cursed it and that's when things started. Yeah. I don't think it was. What if the thing that you guys drank at Anton LaVey's house was weird? I know. I was wondering. I mean, I don't think that either, but I'm like, who's to say that it began at that moment? I think that guy was in a leprechaun. I think he was also just like a phony. Like he didn't even do anything. He just had a meltdown. We don't know that he didn't do anything though. Well, I mean, at the party, he wasn't doing a very good job with what he was hired to do, which was have fun and read cards. Yeah, it doesn't sound (laughs) like he did any readings, but we don't know. Like, he brought people with him. He was, like, fiending for a drink. If we're going to go down that road, I think maybe he activated something. I don't think that he is the sole reason. I think something was in that apartment already. Here's something that's bad news. The tragedies do not stop at Mary Lou's horrific death for Pat. Really? Yeah. Just a few months later, she received a phone call that her cousin, Carolyn, the one in Honolulu, died by suicide at the age of 24. <gasps> Carolyn. hmm Damn. And then within weeks, she got a call from her former secretary's mother. Vera had also died by suicide in her early 20s. No, Hadley, something's wrong with this apartment. And of course, Pat is just heartbroken and probably guilt-ridden, even though it's obviously not her fault. And as the three women who'd lived in her Lombard Street apartment with her had all died in this short succession of one another. She just was going through it. And for months, she would have nightmares about the staircase and the foyer on Lombard Street. And it would always be about Mary Lou being choked to death by something invisible. But Earl Raymond, prime example, that guy was possessed. Well, but so something that really creeps me out is they met when he overheard that man screaming at Pat. What if he locked eyes and like became in a trance when that man... I mean, I don't like giving excuses that he was possessed because regardless, there's no excuse for his abuse. Even if he was, then get help, bro. But it's still odd timing to me that he overheard it. But he rubbed the walls and then passed out. He's got to go. Sounds demonic. What if the tower (sighs) reader... Because you say he came in kind of hot and like bothered. What if he was possessed, passes it off at the party to Earl Raymond? Yeah. So when I first heard Mockingbird Hill and I was researching this, I felt like I needed to share it with someone. So I texted it to my old roommate. She was like, I'm not listening to this song. What if it's passed through the music? The possession is passed through the song. I'm not clicking that. And I was like, okay, interesting theory, but probably fine. Yeah. And then I listened to it and sent it to you and you listened and you were fine. So thanks a lot. When you first showed it to me, I was trying to think of what is the meaning behind this song Mm -hmm. to anyone, but to somebody who's trying to bother her. And all I came up with was mocking. I'll keep going and you'll hear about the song. Okay. So Pat's still reeling. It's at this point, the early 70s. But she's also like kind of thriving. She founded this feminist foundation called the Name Choice Center to advocate for the right of women to keep their own name after they're married. Wow. Yeah. Love that. She gave birth to her first and only son, 
Sean Wilsey in May of 1970. So I'm going to jump ahead to November 1972. Okay. And this is where Mary Lou's story kind of picks back up. About two and a half years after, the three women passed away tragically. And Pat is in Honolulu with her husband, Al, again. And she's at the beauty salon getting her hair done when she meets somebody who's kind of dabbling in something spiritual. And the next day, she's on the beach and she runs into the person again and they introduce themselves. Her name is Jerry Patton. And she says that she reads psychic vibrations. Okay. As they're just sitting there, she's like, let me read yours to Pat. And she says to her, you live in an apartment house up lots of steps. You enter a hallway with a marble floor. And then she proceeds to describe the exact layout that you can still see today in the real estate listing photos of 1000 Lombard Street from 2019. Mm -hmm. Jerry continues saying someone was killed there, a woman. And Pat says that at this point, Jerry was talking so fast, it kind of sounded like a tape recorder that was moving at twice its normal speed. Like it's just spewing out of her. Mm -hmm. So obviously this moment kind of sticks with her. And a year later in 1973, when she's still shaken up about it, she feels even more determined to learn more about the apartment once and for all. And she's also hoping to get some closure to find out what really happened to Mary Lou. So she calls Jerry and she asks her to put her in touch with someone with more psychic abilities. And she's referred to someone named Frank Nick Nosserino. So I'm just going to call him Nick. Okay. And so Pat at this point calls her old landlord and she says, can I please be put in touch with whoever lives in the apartment now? And he says that the people who live there are named James and Phyllis Riley and they live in unit number two now. James is a surgeon. He's not very paranormally inclined as a person, but the landlord gives Pat their number anyway. And while they're on the phone, he says that he doesn't own it anymore because, quote, that place was a voodoo for me. It had a hex on it, Pat. I had more trouble there than I've ever had in my life, end quote. So he also felt like it was a headache. And Pat gets in touch with Phyllis, who agrees that she can come over to the old apartment on September 1st, 1973. Phyllis lets her look around and everything's kind of normal, but Pat suddenly becomes overwhelmed by the smell of smoke. And no one was smoking. There was no fire in the fireplace. But this friend who she had also brought with her just as like safety precaution also confirmed that he smelt it too. But Phyllis said she couldn't smell anything. And all in all, aside from that, the visit went fine. The next evening, Pat then invites Phyllis over for drinks. And that's where she says, you know, my friend died in that flat and I still don't have any closure. And I don't want to scare you, but I'd really like to bring two psychics over to see if I can learn anything new about what happened and if it can provide me with any kind of insight. And Phyllis is super nice and lets her know, I did hear about that and I'm so sorry. You're not scaring me. She also says she's a skeptic and that despite that, she and her husband have actually decided to move out and they have about a month left in their lease. And she says that James, her husband, wouldn't ever admit to anything supernatural and was super pragmatic, but that he had been smelling smoke lately and that the vibe of the apartment was just not to his liking. So she says, you can come over with the two psychics and your friend, but you'll need to arrange it before we move out. They decide to go over on September 15th, 1973. Jerry, the Honolulu energy reader, is in town and Nick, the recommended psychic, come they have tape recorders, cameras, and they arrive before Pat and her friend. When she got there, she says that they were walking around, exploring everything, taking notes, photos, talking into the recorder, basically doing everything so that when they were there, they could fully be in the moment and immersed in it and provide an analysis for her once they're reflecting on all of the evidence that they pick up. So at one point, Jerry says that she was almost pushed down the stairs by an invisible force and that she felt two distinct forces there and got really dizzy in certain spots, kind of like the vertigo sensations that Pat says oh. she experienced. Okay. 
Yeah. And then meanwhile, Nick seems like he's so in touch with the stuff that he like internalizes it. So Nick was overcome with sadness and he felt like he was being pulled and dragged down to the floor in the bedroom and was almost tearful. An empathic medium. Uh Uh-huh. And he seemed sort of possessed as he was laying on the floor with his whole body pressed against it, almost like someone was like pushing him into it. And Jerry was asking him questions. She says, How are you feeling, Nick? I'm very sad. Why are you sad? I don't know. I just didn't do anything. What do you mean you didn't do anything? I didn't do nothing. I don't know. Nick, what went on? Why are you crying? I'm not crying. Am I? And he was crying. So eventually he gets up and he goes to the living room and he feels like he might jump through any of the windows at any point. And then he says into the tape recorder, I went to the tea room and sat down. But what he referred to as the tea room was actually the bedroom because he said it's where Pat has been. And she was in the bedroom kind of like laying low. And he then recorded himself saying, I didn't like to be in there. Emotions are very strong. Someone knocked the table over and the teapot was on the floor. Got very warm. Didn't want to stay in there. Male, definitely male in the bedroom or the tea room. The male seemed to be the violent one. Pat was understandably really disturbed, especially because Nick's mannerisms and speech changed dramatically during all of this. And she said that she had no clue what the tea room was. She had to wait a full month to receive their analysis of the tapes and also to get the photography developed. So the first odd disclaimer... Nick gives in his report was that the guy who developed the photos, John Trina, was this guy too, was a big socialite that Pat didn't know as well during the time. But just keep his name in mind for at the end when I wrap all of this up because it pops back up later in her life. But apparently when he was in the dark room, he didn't know anything about the project or who it was for. But as he was developing the images, he needed to ask for an extension because he kept smelling smoke. And then at one point just evacuated because he thought there was a real fire in the dark room as he was doing all of this. Wow. Yeah. Nick included a folder of all of the images in the analysis that he sent to Pat. And one of the photos captured a a ghostly figure of a woman getting something out of a drawer. And Pat had no clue who it was, but she was certain that it wasn't any of the women present at the time. She kind of didn't really trust that nobody else was in the room when these were being developed. She was kind of suspicious of it all still and wanted to be sure that this was all legit, even though she believed the stuff in the apartment was sketchy. So she had the negatives sent out to another place and her and her husband went and were in the darkroom as it was happening so they could make sure no one was fudging with it and the same image emerged Mm. so she verifies that it's legit but total mystery as to who it is now in terms of the notes and conclusions based on the tape recordings of the day here's things that stood out to me i'll read it to you from his letter to her he saw and felt things in line with symbols of water torrential rain things like tubs filling quickly and overflowing He got feelings of a horse and a buggy being present. So it sounds like whatever's there is like very old. Mm -hmm. And then he also reported the definite smell of fire. It kind of brings me back to the like 1906 fire that they had to dynamite at the end of that block. Oh, yeah. And aside from fire, he also noted a lot of pressure on the back of his head. And he felt like he was being hurled down the stairs. He also sensed that a loud argument took place on the foyer. A lot of the walls were false. The whole place had been remodeled from its original form 
And that might have been something that was causing some issues, which brings me again to like, yeah, we know it was an apartment built over a house or kind of converted. But what you said is maybe it goes even deeper than that. Maybe he was picking up on that because of the weird crawl space above the closet that we now are saying is maybe Um. a hint here. But in terms of his observations of Pat specifically, he said that her aura drastically changed the entire space. And it was bright red. And his analysis of that was that it indicated that the house had a really strong emotional impact and pull and connection with her. Also, while they were in the house, while everyone else was hearing her normal voice, he heard something different. And it sounded to him like she was speaking kind of frantically and quickly and that she was channeling someone with a much deeper voice and that it felt like it was coming from a large woman. That makes me think of the woman in the photo. I don't know. But he made a lot of guesses as to the history of the home, saying that it felt like two people had been killed there since 1960 alone. He thinks a woman was living there and that her body was being sold or used in some way until she died by suicide on the property. Thinking about what San Francisco was like in its infancy. Yeah. During the gold rush, like maybe it was the site of a brothel. I know that there were a lot in that area. He also said that Mary Lou was probably killed on the bed and that the fire was staged. So I think we already knew that, but just confirming it. And then he and Jerry were also doing this thing where they were picking up a lot of initials and names of people that may have been significant to the home at some point, like trying to give Pat some clues about who she could reach out to. But a lot of them end up leading her to real people. At first, though, none of the names meant anything to Pat. So she, you know, is extra determined now to dig into the bottom of this. Here's what she found. As I mentioned in part one of this episode, it was built at some point between 1906 and 1915, the Cranston couple. Mm -hmm. And she was able to track down their nephew, who I think the landlord gave the name of somebody who could connect them. And he was a doctor. The weirdest thing and the most detailed like anecdote he could give was that they used that basement to store all of her quote unquote oddities. But he said that they had like a nice domestic life and that they died of natural causes in the house. So she met a woman named Miss Violet Humber who said that she lived on the top floor and had learned a little bit about the building's history at one point. She said that Pat's apartment was once the dining room and the back room, which Pat used as a bedroom, was like a library where they served tea. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. To me, are we sure everything was all right with the Cranstons? Why did it sound like someone threw boiling tea on somebody? Yeah. Remember how Nick was like, I didn't do anything and was like scared being pushed into the floor and that a male was being violent? Yeah. So then when Pat asked her if she knew of any tragedies, she said that there were like lots and lots of divorces Mm. and that the quote unquote maiden lady had died by suicide on the bottom level. And then she learned that the house had also been split into units in 1949 when the initial couple died. And then this other couple named Fanny and Leonard Taylor owned the building from September 1950 to April 1956. And Pat called her and learned that Leonard had died in the upstairs apartment. There were also lots of alcoholics living in it, according to that woman. And a former tenant who wanted to be kept anonymous said that the only couple who didn't end up in divorce were the Hubbles, which I think is a fake name, honestly. But things didn't necessarily end well for them either. One day he had a horrible fall 
and was really badly injured and couldn't work anymore. And the bills just kept piling up. So they had to move and no one knows what happened to them because they couldn't afford to keep in touch and even have a telephone. So this anonymous woman also told her that the woman on the bottom floor was an alcoholic and had some cute dogs, which were always barking and makes me think of her dog, dog. (laughs) And she had come from a wealthy and prominent family and she had a record player and was always playing Mockingbird Hill. And that's what was found playing when they found her body because she had died by suicide in the bottom flat. Wow. So there's a residual hunting happening Mm -hmm. along with some other stuff. Right? Like there's so many things happening. Some just bad energy. It's not just a haunting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so she also tracked down the woman who lived in the room right before her named Joanna Drew. She said that she loved living there but got terribly sick and lost a ton of weight. And she didn't last very long. And so that's when Pat moved in. And Pat was doing all this digging in the 1970s. And she wrote the book in 1975. But obviously, I'm like, well, who the hell would live in it now? Especially after that book was written in 1975. Well, if those real estate listing photos is still what it looks like. No, come on. Beautiful. Needs a renovation. Bad. It looks like spiders everywhere in that basement. The basement is totally fucked. I can't believe they even put like a little mattress in it. If they renovated it, it would be millions. Millions. Yeah. Shouldn't they take money off for having to walk up a hill and all the stairs? Well, then every single apartment would be like that. Regardless, I agree it's interesting looking. But more than that, just like who would live in this after the intruders came out? So I tried to dig into some of it and I landed on one of those sketchy sites where they tell you people's addresses. Mm -hmm. And I found all of the names of the people who have apparently lived in the apartment according to whatever records they use. And I called, I'm not kidding you, every single number listed. The number you dialed is not in service. I felt like such a creep, but the two that picked up were not interested in talking on the record. So I just had to Google the names. And the only thing that came up for the couple whose name was listed on apartment number two was a divorce record. Wow, that tracks. For another person that I Googled, the results pulled up an obituary that said he died peacefully on February 22nd, 2018 in his home on Lombard Street. And then another man associated with the address pulled up yet another obituary. And it said the same exact thing. He died peacefully in his home on Lombard Street on November 27th, 2009. So they all died in this apartment? That's what I'm just like. I, I get if that happens sometimes, but I'm surprised. It seems to be more than what you would guess statistically. This was just unit two. One was unit three, one was unit one. There's only three units in the building, except the weird... The basement is not a unit. Might be, but it shouldn't be. Please, please, no. (laughs) But when 1000 Lombard Street was back on the market in 2019, the listing agent marketed it like this. The property boasts elegant living quarters and memorable entertaining spaces that have hosted some of San Francisco's and Hollywood's legendary guests, including Frank Sinatra, Andy Warhol, Lana Turner, Gordon and Getty, Ethel Kennedy, and Danielle Steele, to name a few. Danielle Steele. She comes up in a second again, but clearly referring to Pat's parties and failing to mention that the last party ended in a house fire that was perhaps a precursor to the next deadly fire. Of course, they're not going to market it that way, but still kind of crazy that they're even referring to her at all as having lived there, knowing that she's linked to her book, The Intruders, about how fucked up the apartment is. But I'll wrap this sad and I think actually really scary story of 1000 Lombard Street with some advice that Nick gave, which was never go to the house alone. It wants to force its emotions onto you and to be careful because the house is being watched. Yeah. Somebody called her and said, I'm watching you and you're going to die. That's crazy. So what happened 
to Pat, did she or she and Al still together? Did they get divorced? Uh, so yeah, Pat and Al seemed happy together with their son, Sean, for a while. But in 1980, they were divorced. And this all kind of unfolded horribly too, because Al divorced her in order to marry the woman he was having an affair with, oh. Dee Dee Wilsey, who also happened to be one of Pat's best friends. <gasps> yeah. And mm-hmm. guess who Dee Dee was married to at the time of the affair? Earl. <laughs> John Trina, the guy who developed the haunted <gasps> ass photos. What the hell? And guess who John Trina went on to marry? I don't know. Danielle Steele. What? And she lives in the famous Spreckles Mansion, aka the original home of the guy who gave us the term sugar daddy that I told you about in the Kaimuki episode. What in the world is going on here? Lots of like weird incestuous, like upper crust San Francisco stuff happening. Wow. She didn't live happily ever after, but she also kind of did because she went on to have this amazing career. At this point now, she's 93. She's published eight books. I think she's still pretty close with her son, Sean, who's also an author. She has two grandchildren and she's active on Facebook still. She's pretty funny. She's always like, well, my darling, have I got a story for you? (laughs) And I found this comment And I think it's a good place for us to wrap everything up. She said, on the 10th anniversary of Mary Lou's death, I had a visualization with Dr. Sheila Crystal, whom I talk about in my book, Whispers from God. I was sobbing so hard I could hardly focus. Mary Lou was in a circle and she said to me, you should have died, not me. Sheila said to tell her that if I was supposed to die, I would have died. Finally, after a long talk, Mary Lou said she loved me. I told her I loved her and that she has to go now, that friends were waiting for her on the other side. She threw me a kiss, turned and left. That was the last time I quote unquote, saw my friend, but I think of her often and it remains the saddest event of my life. Wow. And there might be something in her chart that could tell us more. Yeah. I know we've both been wanting to speak with an astrology expert, but I also wanted to make sure that we chose someone who could not only weigh in on Pat's birth chart, but who could also talk to us about the ways that astrology in general overlaps with the supernatural and just break everything down. So we're going to be talking to Stephanie Campos, who is an astrologer and healer. She also identifies as a good witch. She'll be able to give us some insight into curses and also maybe some tips for how to cleanse a supposedly cursed house. Wow, I am so ready for this. Let's go talk to her. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to Dark House. We're really excited to have you on for today's episode. So thank you for joining us. Sure. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. My name is Stephanie Campos. I am an astrologer, witch, and healer. I work with clients one-on-one to remove limiting beliefs, blocks, anxieties, and create new neural pathways to help them live their dream life. And I use different magical tools and modalities like astrology, EFT tapping, and magic and energy work and clearing um, to facilitate those shifts and transformations. What is EFT tapping? EFT stands for emotional freedom technique. Essentially, you tap along these acupressure points and you verbalize an issue and talk about it. And it's been proven to have a positive effect on the amygdala, which is the stress center of the brain, and the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain. And it can actually help to create new neural pathways and shift beliefs release phobias and create new associations. So it's been used extensively with people who suffer from PTSD and trauma survivors. It's super fucking magical. Mm. Yeah. That kind of reminds me almost of CBT therapy. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that your approach kind of combines more traditional talk therapies and behavioral therapies with these more 
what do you call them? We were talking to somebody else the other day about using the word occult and whether or not that resonated with them. What word do you use? I use magic, but yeah, occult, witchy, mystical. Cool. How does that kind of inform your lifestyle in general? Well, I have daily practices and rituals. I check in every morning with my guías principales, which are my spirit team. And I have altars and ofrendas that I tend to every day. Mm. You know, I'll tap and do EFT tapping in front of the mirror and remind myself like you're a bad bitch. (laughs) And I work with glamour magic. So it kind of informs every aspect of my life. I always feel connected to the other realms and seeing ghosts and the paranormal, like that's something that runs in my mom's side of the family. And it's something that I've just grown up with. I was going to ask you how you first discovered the world of astrology and what made you want to pursue a deeper relationship with that. But before we get into that, Alyssa, don't you feel like we should hear a little more about her encounters with the paranormal growing up? I mean, I my first question was just if you could explain glamour magic a little bit further, because when I think of glamour magic, I think of that scene in the craft. Mm-hmm. But I imagine it's it's not that, right? I mean, there's so many different types of glamour magic. One of my favorite things to do is work with the outfits that I wear, styling, dressing for success. For example, I wanted to call in a TV appearance and I bought an outfit ahead of time and I did a spell and I put the outfit on and I just embodied what was it like to already have lived that experience. And Within a couple of weeks, I got an offer to be on the Today Show. Oh, cool. So yeah, that's one way you can use glamour magic, just like embodying your future self. It helps you tangibly feel into your future reality, but in the now. Wow. Interesting. Okay, sorry. I sidetracked us. Back to the paranormal. (laughs) (laughs) No, that was a good question. (laughs) So it ran on your mom's side. Did your mom tell you about it? first? Or did you have an experience and then share it with your family? And then they were like, oh, it's time to tell her. My grandma was the one who used to talk to me about it a lot. She used to call it ESP. Mm -hmm. She has had a lot of eerie experiences. I spent a lot of time with my grandma growing up in the house that she lived in was incredibly haunted. It was in Hopland, California. My grandpa worked on a vineyard and a farm. Do you have any stories from that house or more just like passed down? Not from that house in particular, but I have tons of stories. I have some cute stories. I have some scary stories. Do you have a preference? I mean, I wish that I said I want the cute one, but I kind of want the scary one. I know. I was thinking scary too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, recently I had a spirit attach itself to me Mm. and I went to Atlanta for a work event and they were hosting an event at this old hotel that was built in the 1800s. I'm clairsentient, clairaudient, and clairvoyant. So like I feel stuff physically. Mm. Either I start to feel heavy, dizzy, pressure, exhausted, or I start to feel like it's harder for me to breathe. But when I walked into the space, I could just feel I'm like there's tons of activity here. Wow. And the owner knows that it's haunted, but she was like, we never see them. We've never seen the ghosts. And I was like, okay, cool. And we went upstairs and because she said that's where they hang out mostly. I walked in to one of the rooms. Nothing happened. I walked in the second room, nothing happened, but I could feel like the intensity. And when I walked into the third room, there was a like full blown apparition in front of me. Mm. Wow. It was like misty, thick, kind of gray cloud. And I wasn't the only one who saw it, but then it passed through my body. Oh, no. And immediately my right ear shut. Mm. 
I couldn't hear anything out of my right ear and I felt a heaviness on my shoulder and I felt a male. Uh, that was terrifying. Yeah. He hung around with, it took like 24 hours to get rid of him because I was at a, a work event and I didn't have all of my tools with me. Wow. So yeah, that night I went to bed and I woke up in the middle of the night and I was sleeping with the light on because I was that scared. Yeah. Wow. And when I opened my eyes, I saw that there was like a decrease in the pillow. And at the same time, I felt someone holding my hand. Mm. That was pretty spooky. Did you ever figure out who it was? Yeah. So they said that there was like this man ghost that used to come to the hotel and he would bring a lot of different women. So probably it was that guy. That's my best guess. Wow. Woof. <sighs> I think I would have to fly home and be like, cancel the meetings. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. So switching gears a little bit to, I mean, not really because there's lots of overlaps here, but a little more in the astrology realm. Mm. For people who aren't that familiar with it, can you explain what a sun sign is and then what other placements are worth looking into and why? So astrology is so much more than your sun sign. You know, a lot of people know their zodiac sign, the season that they're born under, but you're born with an entire birth chart. And that is a snapshot of the sky at the moment you were born. So there's also the moon, Venus, Mars, and all of these planets mean different things. Um, like one of them represents love. Another one is our emotions. So you can really gather a lot of information about your strengths, your weaknesses, your karma patterns, et cetera. Your sun sign is your ego, your identity. It's this energy that you're here building and working toward and embracing in your life. I think it's also very important to look at your rising sign and the planet that rules your rising sign. So every zodiac sign has a planet that's associated with it. For example, if you're a cancer rising, the moon is your ruling planet. So whatever the moon is doing in your birth chart is super important for you and almost more important than your sun sign because a rising sign occupies the first house in your birth chart and that represents your identity, who you are, your personality, even more so than the sun sign. So a lot of times when people don't resonate with their sun sign, it's because you have to read for your rising sign. If you're a writer or a creative person looking into your Mercury placement, your uh, Venus placement would be very helpful. I'm like taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're curious about love and your love language and like the type of karma you have around love, looking at your Venus is helpful. Saturn is great to know, like, where are you too hard on yourself? And also Saturn's the Lord of time. So like throughout your life, where are you maturing and where are you building skills? So I have your birth charts pulled up over here. Ugh. Alyssa, you are a Pisces rising. Yes. So. Jupiter is going to be a very important planet in your chart. You have Jupiter and Libra in the eighth house of death, mystery, and occult. So like, this is such a perfect okay. podcast. Great. Okay. <laughs> very on brand. And Hadley, you are a Libra rising. So Venus is going to be very important in your chart. Hmm. Your Venus is in Gemini and it's in the ninth house. And that's the ninth house of publishing, broadcasting, major broadcast vibes. So okay. communicating wow. for a profession, like so written in the stars. It. It's written in the stars. <laughs> That's so interesting. I actually, yeah, I feel like I identify with my moon sign, which is Taurus, I think. Mm -hmm. But like, who doesn't? It's about eating good food and being a flirt, right? Stuff like that. Your moon is in the eighth house. So both of you mm -hmm. have these eighth house placements um, that have to do with kind of like the mysteries in life and mm. diving into the taboo and the unknown. And yeah. 
Interesting. Can you explain the houses a little bit for people who aren't as familiar with astrology? You mentioned already each planet has sort of, you know, different aspects of life that are associated with them and the houses do too, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, imagine a pizza and it's cut up into 12 sections. Okay. Um, every slice represents something different. So you have one slice that's your home and family, another one that is committed partnerships, marriage, work and career. And so those are just the houses. And then depending on if you have planets in those particular houses, that will kick up more energy and activity in that part of your life. And dependent on the angles that the planets are making, there's math in astrology. A lot of people don't know that. Mm -hmm. So depending on how the planets are connecting and like chatting with one another, it really shows even more detail about that part of your life. Okay, awesome. So one thing that I remember reading about, obviously the placement of the planets and the stars is one of the fundamentals of astrology, but so is where you are on the planet, right? So how important do you think it is to, before someone makes like a big move across the world or something, is it to look at specific places and how you might interact with them at different times? Mm. Mm, That's an interesting question. So there is a branch of astrology called astrocartography and Mm. Basically, it takes your birth chart and it layers it over a map of the world. And you can see if there's how you vibe with that place. So there are astrologers that specialize in that particularly. I highly recommend it. I found it to be true. I had a lot of a tense relationship with my dad growing up. And he lived in Wisconsin and was from Wisconsin. And that was on my Mars line, which is the planet of war and conflict. Mm-hmm. So oh, interesting. Just, wow. A simple example. Yeah. In today's episode, we were talking a lot about a haunted house that is in San Francisco on Lombard Street. I am a Bay Area, born and raised. Oh, cool. And I'm living in South San Francisco. Oh, amazing. Okay. I am also from San Francisco, so we have that in common. So the house we're talking about is actually a now converted apartment building on San Francisco's Lombard Street. And it's at the bottom of the street where it meets with Leavenworth. And there was a lot of tension that led up to a really tragic ending in that apartment. But it was all sparked by, or at least began, at an astrology-themed party. This was in the 60s. It was just something that was supposed to be fun and mystical and light. But to catch you up, this woman threw the party. And then a tarot card reader who was running late and came in like kind of hot and bothered and weird was mad because she didn't get him a drink quickly enough. And then he stormed out of the apartment, got mad at her, said he was cursing the apartment. And after that, over the course of about a year and a half, a string of really bad things happened until she moved out. And then it culminated with the woman who was house-sitting for her and also her best friend and kind of like an assistant um, died in a fire there. So lots of follow-up questions about that. We wanted to understand a little bit more about how maybe some of their birth charts and when they were in the house could have played a role in that? And then also, do you believe in curses, hexes, things like that? Mm. So I did plug in some of the birth charts and it's really difficult to say without the specific time that they were born. But I will say uh, in Pat's birth chart, she was born with the moon in cancer. And cancer is a sign that is associated with the home, our hearth, our sense of security. And depending on what time Pat was born, if she was born later in the day, the moon would have been right next to Pluto, which is the planet of death and the Lord Mm. of the underworld. Kind of intense, 
related to the home. You know, the moon is also a symbol that represents our home and our sense of security. So there are definitely indicators in Pat's chart of like intensity, upheaval, sudden events, shocking. And and Pat was born under a full moon. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of kind of drama, major drama. (laughs) (gasps) That's so interesting. And then in terms of curses and hexes, I absolutely believe in curses and hexes. They are not something that I have studied admittedly or looked into because I am a little nerve about them. I don't really want anything to do with them, to be honest. Um, Mm -hmm. But magic is magic and it's very powerful and it's informed by our intention. I'll just say that there is a reason that the word spell is in spelling our words matter, whether they're spoken or written. So definitely believe in curses. When I read about this story, my initial vibe and like impression and gut feeling was that there was already something attached to that house or connected to the house. Mm. And the tarot reader, I mean, a lot of mystical people are connected to other realms in other ways. And when you're open and when you're not practicing psychic self-defense, entities can attach themselves to you. Maybe the tarot reader was more sensitive to these paranormal types of activities and beings, and maybe they got hit by something that was already in the house. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. But very spooky. Yeah. We also think that there must have been already something there that was maybe dormant and then got re-released or something when he came into the home. Also, just the idea of if you host a lot of parties and there's just all of these different types of energies constantly moving throughout your house and you're not practicing, whether you're talking about physical self-defense, like because you don't know the intentions of everyone entering your home or psychic self-defense, like you said, that to me feels like it leaves you more vulnerable to any kind of threats. I'm curious about if there's anything about maybe he was not possessed by something, but something attached to him. And then he passed it to other people around her and in her life. Yeah, I think something attached itself to him and Mm. that would shift the way that he acted. Maybe that's what encouraged him to put the curse or hex on the house. But from there, whatever was dormant or attached to the house just seems like he brought it back to life. Yeah. There is also a history of fires. During the 1906 earthquake, they dynamited the bottom of that street to stop the spread of fires. And then Later, there was another fire at one of her parties. So both of these are kind of like precursors of the fire that eventually broke out. I know that astrology has to do a lot with like elements and things like that. What are your impressions of of fire and in this context in particular? I would have to look at a specific chart, like maybe the the chart of when the house was built or something like that. And to see, can we make a correlation between, was it born during... Leo season or Aries season? Like, is Mm. there a a deeper connection to the element of fire? But that is possible then. Birth charts don't just apply to human beings. You could do your pets, you could do your house. Yes, absolutely. Relationships all have birth charts. Marriages have birth charts, everything. So with a birth chart, you're supposed to get a birth certificate that would have your birth time on it. What about a house, a relationship, any of those other things that we just named? Do you need a specific birth time? I would say for marriages and stuff like that, what you can do is elect a time. So you can work with an astrologer ahead of time to decide when is the most auspicious time to get married based on our birth chart, based on the coming months. Wow. That's what I did when I got married. So it sounds like it can kind of be up to the couple, but would it be the minute you said I do or would it be when you signed the actual marriage certificate? 
I think different astrologers obviously have different opinions, but I like the signing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you picked a time to sign mm-hmm. based on astrology. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, what would you suggest for the birth time of a house? Oh, maybe the day that someone's allowed to move in or the time that someone buys the house and signs the paper over. Okay. That could be an interesting birth chart to look at. Do you think that there's something strange about the timing of Mary Lou dying in the apartment after just one week there when Pat was there for eight and a half years? Or do you feel like that's probably just a coincidence? There probably is something up with the timing. I would have to pull up the time that she died. The fire was seen at 2 a.m. and then the fire department was dispatched at 2.30 and she was already dead. So probably somewhere between then. And it was June 21st, 1969. Yep. That's correct. Oh yeah. That's a dramatic day. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that day, all of these planets were meeting. The moon, Pluto, the south node, Jupiter, and Uranus. First of all, that's a ton of planets in one sign, all in the sign of Virgo. The moon is the home, right? Pluto is the planet of death in the underworld. The south node is a karmic point of release. Mm. Jupiter is the planet of expansion. So when it meets all these other planets, especially Pluto, it can make darker themes, paranormal, bigger, more intense. Uranus is the planet of surprise, sudden events, and upheaval. Oh, God. So that sounds very dramatic. Mm. Yeah, it tracks. Wow. That's so interesting. What are your feelings then on fate versus free will? I know that's obviously a massive question, but in this context, I'm thinking someone killed her. So regardless of what's going on with the planets, there's also that element of foul play going on. Do you think these things are written in the stars or what has to happen for that to align? I believe in free will and fate. Mm. I do think that we all have free will, but I do think that some things or themes or events are predestined. I feel like the energy of the house got her. Mm. I don't think it was a person. I think it was something supernatural. Which would explain a lot about why there's so much about it that these pretty well-respected investigators couldn't figure out Yeah, on what should be a more straightforward case than other things they were dealing with at the time, like the Zodiac Killer. Mm -hmm. It was built on an old cemetery. There were possibly some hangings that took place there. Mm Mm-hmm. I think very possible to have really upset and angry spirits that have been disrespected. Can sometimes just over time things kind of sporadically get better and there's no explanation for it? Or do you kind of have to do a cleansing to remove that negativity? Hmm. Well, you know, anything's possible. But if I was moving into one of those apartments there, well, first of all, I would never do that. Yeah, me either. (laughs) I would want a cleansing, you know. I lived in a house in the sunset for a while and it was totally haunted, the the room that I was staying in. And I've been in so many different houses in the city. You can just tell when energy is still attached to it. You know, there's been so many times where I'm like over at a friend's house and I like sense or feel, I'm like, oh, someone else lives here with you. But like, I don't tell them. I feel like some people you know, you can tell it too. And then there's others that you're like, they're going to panic. So I'm just not going to say anything or... Yeah. Yeah. It depends, you know, and some people are more open to like my witchy ways and curious and are like, Oh, are you feeling anything? Or, and other Mm -hmm. people just don't believe. And that's totally cool. It depends case by case, but I had an old roommate and this is a cute ghost story. Okay, good. So I was asleep in my room and I was in a very deep dream and I 
woke up suddenly and felt almost like I was like whooshed back into my body. And Mm. usually when that happens, it's because there's a spirit in the room or some type of entity. And I looked over and I saw this bright orb and it just shot through my room. It went from like one side of the wall all the way through the other and it passed through. And I was like, that's weird. And I, you know, went to bed. I was living in a condo. And so I shared a wall with a neighbor. And in the morning I saw my neighbor's like oxygen take out front. And we're like, what's going on? And they were like, oh, he passed in the middle of the night. And so I'm pretty sure I saw his soul or pass through the wall. So I told my roommate. Wow. That's really interesting. That's interesting that you weren't scared. Is it because you can sense the energy of the spirit and whether it's evil or not? Yeah. I've definitely had other terrifying experiences, you know, like sleep paralysis. Have you ever read about that? Yes. So I've definitely had experiences where I woke up and had sleep paralysis and I could see an entity in the room and I could feel its energy. There was one instance where that happened. And once I could finally move, I turned over to look at my boyfriend at the time and he was sitting up staring at me. And then he fell backwards Mm, and passed out. And I screamed, obviously, and like locked myself in the bathroom. And eventually when I came back in there, I was like, hey, what the hell was that? Like, do you remember that? And he's like, that didn't happen. He's like, I've been asleep. (gasps) Yeah. Um, What's your theory on why it always happens or mostly at least happens when you're mid slumber? I don't know. Maybe because our brain is like doing shit that we don't understand. That would make sense. Or like maybe we're more vulnerable or more open to it. More open, you know, using the parts of our brain that aren't practical and analytical. And yeah. yeah. Can you tell from somebody's birth chart if they have metaphysical gifts or like if they'll be more receptive to like you were saying? Okay. Is Alyssa's chart telling you that she is? Listen. Pisces rising. (laughs) I mean, hello. Yes. I believe that you can. I also believe that everyone has the ability to tap into spiritual and psychic gifts, but it's like doing push-ups, like it's exercises and consistency and it's a muscle you have to flex. And being a Pisces rising is definitely someone who is more drawn to these types of topics and mysteries. What were the kind of things that you did to get better with using your intuition? I usually feel it so intensely in my physical body. But when I was younger and in my 20s and just starting to explore this side of myself in like a more conscious way versus when you're a kid and you're like, I have an imaginary friend and whatever. (laughs) I wasn't practicing psychic self-defense. So a lot of my terrifying stories came from that period of my life. Yeah, I think now what I've done is developed a relationship with my spirit team. I have daily rituals. I give them offerings. We have coffee in the morning together and just, you know, communicating with them, telling them about my day. And in turn, like when I do ask for their advice or guidance, they show up. They always show me signs or just deliver messages based on like what I'm asking. And it's just a very um, sweet relationship. Wait, how do you meet that team? Like, is it something that over time you sort of are able to understand these presences that have been with you in different moments? Or do you elect who is a part of your spirit team? Or how does that work? You don't elect. Shoot. (laughs) They kind of pick you. (laughs) And some of them stay for a while and then some of them leave. You know, there can be different spirits that are with you throughout your life. But I, I believe that everybody has spirits. All you need to do is really start to put in consistent effort. I've studied and mentored with uh, 
Caitlin Grania, who teaches Espiritismo Cruzado, and that really helped define some of my rituals and practices. Um, on my mom's side, my uh, lineage is from Mexico by the way of Spain. So like really tapping into your ancestry and what are rituals and practices that could help you uh, connect with this team. But it can really just be as simple as like getting a glass of water and a candle and an offering and just having a space and just chatting with them like three minutes a day in the morning and being like, hey, this is something I'm worried about today. Could you help me out a little bit. Mm. And then also like, how are you? Yeah. You know, it's got to be mutual. Mm -hmm. And is it always your actual blood lineage? How do you define ancestral in this context? Like, are they all your ancestors? No. Some of them are spirits or entities from different dimensions Mm. or, you know, different types of beings. Interesting. And that once you build up those connections and relationships, you'll start to have feelings in your body when they're with you or when they're, you see a sign you'll notice a consistent, oh, I feel this way. Or I was thinking about that when this showed up. That means I'm on the right path. Yeah. Interesting. What's your sign? Yeah. Or your your three main signs? So I am a Leo sun, a Leo rising, and a Virgo mm. moon. But my Leo sun is forming a square. So it's like an intense contact in astrology with Pluto, which is the planet of death in the underworld. So if you read about Leos, it's like, they're, you know, they're smiles and sunshine and like to take up the spotlight, which of course I love to do that. <laughs> but I also have this like inner goth chick that is so interested <laughs> in death. I actually do a lot of death work. So working with people who are transitioning and helping to guide them and clear their energy and just uh, relieve some anxiety as they move to the other side. That's awesome. That's amazing. I yeah. also would imagine that it would reduce the amount of spirit in this realm oh. who mm. stay behind mm. if they're feeling more comfortable with transitioning out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, since you were able to briefly check out our charts or you had them pulled up to see if there was anything that you like right off the bat notice about them and then Hadley and I could try to verify mm. just for the non-believers out there who try to doubt astrology. Okay, one thing that's super cute about your charts Hadley, your moon in Taurus is right on top of Melissa's Venus in Taurus. So that's like a very sweet sisterly connection to have someone's emotional world and sense of safety, the moon on top of someone's love language and like what they value, what they appreciate. That's a really, really sweet connection. Oh, I didn't even realize that you were going to then overlap them. That's really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Sinistry. I've done it with every single ex-boyfriend and yeah, husband. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, I do that with uh, like celebrity names. (laughs) I feel like I can usually tell whatever idea I've cooked up in my head of like what our relationship would be. It's usually accurate. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. For everybody except Dylan O'Brien, but whatever. (laughs) His loss. (laughs) But yeah, it's such a profound tool and you can use it to really time out your life and figure out when am I going to be experiencing a period of intensity? When are gifts and blessings coming my way? Yeah. One of the most famous, I think what I call it a placement in astrology is when Mercury is in retrograde. Can you explain that Mm. and why? And is it a little too hyped up or do you think it does deserve its reputation as a little disastrous? I think Mercury retrograde gets a bad rap. Mercury is the planet of communication, commerce, and travel. So like 
all of those areas of our life can be affected. Miscommunication is more common during Mercury retrograde, but it's really a period of revision and refocusing and rethinking whatever area Mercury is moving through in our chart. That's the area of life that we are reworking in some way. And it's an opportunity to slow down and reassess. So when we do move forward, we are having our needs met. We have a a better plan in place. Like it's favorable, you know, eventually, but we have to do kind of the hard work or have the conversations we've been avoiding and that kind of stuff. I don't really think it's bad. I kind of grown to enjoy Mercury retrograde. (laughs) That's good. So you do personal readings because I'm like, I have questions. I need you to check a bunch of things in my chart. Yes. Yeah. So I do personal readings. They're 90 minute sessions. And usually I like to blend different modalities to kind of help people heal. But if, you know, the client wants to focus just on astrology for 90 minutes, like the stars are my favorite thing to chat about. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to do that. Awesome. Yeah. I love that you do it from a more intersectional approach for a more holistic kind of healing process. Yeah. I mean, astrology is the perfect setup for a session to help someone step into a deeper sense of self-awareness and like, what are the patterns that I'm in and what are karmic cycles that I'm noticing and hearing the stranger talk to me about. And Mm -hmm. maybe it is something I should address. And then from there to use the other healing modalities to really shift through some of that is, yeah, I'm just really grateful to do this work. Amazing. So where can listeners book a reading with you? So you can book with me on my website at stephaniencampos.com. And you can find me on Instagram at stephaniencampos as well. Awesome. I'm going to be pulling that up right now. Yeah. (laughs) Well, this was awesome. Thank you. I was so excited when this landed in my inbox. Yay. I was like, oh my gosh, did I manifest this? This is so exciting. (laughs) So yeah, thank you for having me and being open to these different modalities. Yes. Oh, thank you. I feel like my day is turned around after talking to you. (laughs) Thank you. Sweet. Wow, that was great. I love how she spoke about how astrology can be used like in conjunction with different therapy approaches. I know... You're also probably itching to stop recording so that you can go book a session with her right now. No, I'm literally on her website right now. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay, wait. So let me ask you, do you know your spirit team? I know at least one person on my spirit team, but I definitely took to heart what she said about that relationship being a two-way street and needing to ask your spirit team Mm. how they're doing and feeling rather than just always asking for their help. So really, yeah, I'm going to try to be more mindful of that moving forward. The way that I asked if we can elect them and she was like, no, cracked me up because I was like ready to go get a candle and a glass of water to go recruit big and little Edie along with like maybe Eve Babbitt's probably Mother Teresa. Even Jesus can come be on my team if he's interested. Jesus is on everybody's team. Oh, is is he really? I think that's like the free bingo spot. Everyone gets that one. Oh my God. (laughs) Okay, well. Obviously, that was a bit of a tone shift from what we were talking about with Patsy Lou and Mary Lou and in a good way, I hope, because of just how sad and heavy that story gets, especially at the end. But I guess my parting thought on the apartment is what a bombshell that she thinks an energy in the house got to Mary Lou and not a human being. I don't know personally if I agree, but it's interesting to hear that someone thinks a ghost or whatever kind of entity can kill you. I'm open to all possibilities, but knowing that we'll never reach the truth of how she died Mm. will drive me absolutely crazy. So personally, I Mm -hmm. think I have to close the book on this one, but I'm glad we got to talk about it. So thank you for sharing. No, I'm glad that you're the one to 
segue us on because I could like stay on this topic forever and be like, well, how about another theory? (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening. We hope that you're getting excited for Halloween, a little less afraid of Mercury in retrograde, but appropriately afraid of pissed off tarot card readers. So don't forget to leave us a rating and review if you like what you heard or have any thoughts that you would like to share. Thanks for listening.